Hello and welcome to episode 5 of Around the World and 80 Drinks with the Thinking Drinkers. Once again we're off on an intoxicating journey to somewhere different, unshackling you from the confines of your consciousness and helping you escape from the reality of life. Of course the reality will still be there on your return, but a fleeting break from reality is better than no break at all, especially when it involves a drink. As ever, your hosts are myself, Ben McFarland, and alongside me, the other award-winning drink expert and fellow thinking drinker, Tom Sandham. How are you doing, Tom? Wagwan in Hertfordshire. Oh, Ilgwan here, Ben. Uh, no, nothing really. We're still in lockdown. Um, uh, but I'm I'm well. I'm maintaining my chipper attitude, which I adopted uh, a week ago. And, Very irritating. Uh, yeah, I have my ups and downs, but I, I save all the chipperness for this podcast. Hair is at a... Is it an all-time low? Uh, or high, I imagine. Well, yeah. Currently, I've decided working on um, working on a look I call Mouth from the Goonies. Do you remember Mouth in the Goonies? It's a bit of a niche reference. Um, Which one was he? He was the one with the mouth, or the, the sort of really mouthy kid. But he had this sort of shampooed, swept back look. So it looks quite slick when you get out of the shower. And I, I catch myself and think, yeah, that's quite Wall Street. Yeah, I'm doing pretty well with the hair there and then as it dries over the day it sort of rises in all directions a bit like a souffle <laughs> um yeah so that's, that's have you why. tried product yeah i do but it seems to especially in this sunshine it seems to dry out quite quickly and and then you find yourself on a sort of an hour-long walk halfway there you really are bouffant and um and everyone's sort of wondering when i'm going to shave it off uh which yeah, is I'm, never which is I'm never find if you if you try and use product, it's 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 an obvious attempt to try and control it, and when mm. it fails, it looks like you're vain. Yes. So, yes. some in some ways, it's better just to let it go. I know. I mean, go, I guys, I don't care, man. There's bigger things to worry about at the moment. <laughs> Even as they are. I mean, a lot of people are going through a a genuine hell right now. Um, so, talking about our hair is is probably. Uh, not high on the list of priorities. Having said that, it is a big issue in my life, and I think for the podcast listeners, we probably need some sort of uh, a Barnet's bulletin, a, a hair sort of yeah. My, my, um, How's your thing? Thanks for asking. Um, it's well, I tried to get it into a um, just because I'm. This is purely out of boredom. I tried to get it into a man bun. And I'm <laughs> not quite there. <laughs> There's not much should you ever be. No. <laughs> God's teeth, man. What are you thinking? A grey curly man bun. I, I wow. think that's just going to look like um, an old lady who works in a laundrette or something. It's not you a will. look I've ever gone for before. <laughs> well, you do look a bit like your mum, so you start looking like your mum. <laughs> curly hair in a man bun. I don't think I've ever seen that. It sounds like no, it no, like but I was inspired by there was a video of Gareth Bale, the uh, footballer. Yeah. But he doesn't um, have curly grey hair. He doesn't. And there's no there's lots of things, uh, sort of a uh, lot of aesthetic elements of Gareth Bale that I don't share. Like he's fit and <laughs> and <Wealthy>. he's wealthy <laughs> and Welsh. Um, uh, anyway, a bit there's a video of him doing like overhead kicks in his living room, and he still had his man bun up. Yeah. There's, uh, there's, yeah let's not room. go into that. The lawyers will be on to us. Um, about, what, what? They're not going to have a go at about suggesting that he's got a ball patch up there. Well, imagine if our our um our hair podcast takes off as a spin off of this podcast. I mean, yeah, I think keep your powder dry. Um, all right, uh, all right, yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> we'll come back. Going. We're coming to Gareth Bale. Yeah, 
another time. Um, but uh, so so it's all nice and bunched up at the top like a cauliflower. Lovely. Uh, yeah, no, it's looking good. Good. In more uh, relevant drinks news, I should say I've got some white rum on the go this week. Clarin okay. from Haiti, a range of rums they produce out there. It's all really artisan. They they hand cut their sugar cane and transport it around on ox carts. Um, and the rum is delicious. So I've been having that in a in a in a daiquiri. And um, we've had a lot of rum love coming back on our Diplomatico, which we had last week, Ben. Have you noticed that in the old um, socials? People saying they love it, they're getting it. Um, yeah. You, yep. you and Roberts, he was, he was salivating over it. It's a guy called Darren Hiles, or Heels. Sorry, Darren, I don't know how to pronounce your name. But he got a bottle for his 21st birthday. said it's the finest rum he's ever had. So well, well done, Darren. Well done for listening. Thank oh, you for, for, for coming back and keeping our spirits up while we're um, not able to tour with our comedy show and see you so that's what i've been doing drinking rum what have you been drinking well i had a bit of a dilemma because on ve day um i didn't there wasn't like a street party around our way um and it was a nice day obviously a bar we had a barbecue just just me the wife and the kids and uh the only cold beers i had in the fridge were Krombacher. very nicely they sent yeah. me some beers but they're german and i was thinking <laughs> Can I have a German beer on VE Day? Wow, you, I thought, well, yes, now, if now's not the time, 75 years later, to start building bridges via the medium of drinking beer, then when is? So I, I did, and they're very nice. They're, especially their Weiss beer was very Good. nice. With some well done. Alcohol. Well done for getting past the, that whole issue of World War II. It's funny, my kids still call them the bad guys. <laughs> well, no, Germans aren't bad guys. Yeah, but they are in the war, aren't they? They're the bad guys. Yeah, yeah. It's not like the Jedi v the Sith, though. You know, no. they're actually normal people now, and they <laughs> went through a bit of a spell of, of, of uh, yeah, yeah, not being nice. Yeah. But uh, not all of them. Not all of them. No. Anyway, let's not get bogged down in this. Christ, no. German beers are fantastic. Yeah. So like Don't mention right. the war. Let's keep going. <laughs> now we're going to Germany. Where are we going to this week, Tom? I don't. You're 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 up first with your your drink, and well, I've, I've, uh, I don't know where we're going. Where are we going? We're going to the Netherlands, uh, Holland, <laughs> uh, the Jamaican, yeah, Netherlands, <laughs> Kentucky, Netherlands. Uh, no, we're going to Holland, the Netherlands. Um, uh, yeah, we start we start with this because we're going to have some Keta One Botanical Spirit, um, and it's a, a nice, uh, light, zesty uh, aperitif style drink actually. So it's, it's something that you can have while you're uh, while you're cooking your dinner or making the barbecue. Hopefully, listeners have picked some up. We're trying to encourage you, listeners, to buy. So what we say at the end of the podcast is what we'll be drinking next week. So uh, please do try and try try to do this so that we can taste it all together. Um, with the Kettle One Botanical Spirit, there were three varietals to try. So uh, whatever you have chosen of the three, if all three, uh, get them in the glass and um, and start uh, smelling them straight away because there's a beautiful botanical aroma coming off these. So you've got the peach and um, orange blossom. Orange blossom. Mm. That is, a, is lovely. Well, you should be able to get lots of uh, pungent citrus notes off there, as you'd expect, and um, and peachy notes. We'll get to tasting it in a minute um, because sometimes the aromas of these things don't necessarily line up with the, the flavours. Um, you, like me, have enjoyed uh, quite a few jaunts over to to Amsterdam and uh, and other Dutch uh, cities mm. over the years. 
all mostly in the name of drink, but also coincidentally, we discovered we both we both uh, dated women who spent time in in the Netherlands. Um, yes, I had a girlfriend during my uh, early twenties whose whose parents lived out there in a in a in Nardenvesting, which is a like a, a preserved fortified town. So I went back and forth there. I know you did it as well. Um, and my first ever girlfriend was a Dutch girl called uh, Kareen. Right. And she's actually Dutch. She was six foot. And um, I'm not six foot. She was a little taller than me. And uh, uh, it was quite intimidating. I didn't like going out with someone taller than you. Oh, really? We, when we were walking down the road, I used to sort of subconsciously just sort of push her off the curb as if oh. so we're the same height. <laughs> <laughs> all the same lie down. Oh yeah, oh yeah. In misogynistic. Yeah. Um, still, but uh, funny enough, when you lie down, they are still taller. It depends where you lie in the bed, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, even shorter people can be taller than you lie down. Uh, but uh, but but I went all over Holland uh, and and saw great things uh, when I was in that relationship. But they actually took me to Leuven. Um, and that was at my request, which is uh, is across the border there. But because uh, I was a big Stella Artois fan in those days, in the uni days, um, mostly because the other choices at the uni bar were, were pretty diabolical. Uh, but uh, I do remember going there, and it was fantastic. Stella Artois off a tap at the brewery was was really nice. That's in Belgium, Tom. Yeah, I know. I said across the border. Oh, so I made, right, right, I made them drive across, but it was all related to, to time spent out there. I mean, the point was that I enjoyed some of the botanical wares. <laughs> so I'm sure you have too, Ben. Uh, yes, no, absolutely. And, um, and that particular jaunt to, to Leuven, we came back and then went to the coffee shops. And I remember the following morning, uh, her mum driving back to the airport with my head hanging out of the, uh, the car window as we bolted down the uh, motorway. It was like some sort of a sad dog uh, with my tongue hanging out. And I was retching her though instead of barking. But that was an early lesson on drink less, drink better. But the point was that there's, they've, got, they've got form when it comes to uh, botanical experimentation. And that's true historically. And uh, they, they've always had this. Uh, in the middle of the 16th century, it was actually the Dutch who were leading the way in what scientists were calling a flourishing age of herbals, of the herbals, uh, when botany was seen as sort of the, the dominant medical science. In brewing history, the Dutch, as you will know, Ben, you can yep. tell listeners, they... They sent us hops. Yeah. And Henry VIII, uh, who was um, in charge at the time, was very sceptical. Anything anything green and plant-like coming over from Holland, everyone's like, hey, wait a minute. Uh, but he refused to have hops in his um, royal household. He thought they were deviant. Uh, yeah. Any of the beers he brewed didn't have hops in. And, it, and that beer was called Ale. Oh, there's a whole book on it, Tom. Uh, well, we, we'll come back to it. But that's yeah. the point. The Dutch, the Dutch were giving us that. They gave us our juniper spirits, gins or haneva, uh, juniper being the core botanical. Um, uh, juniper was being added to eau de vies all, all around Europe, particularly coming up from southern Europe before the Dutch got involved. But it was the Dutch who made haneva, haneva or, or gin, commercial and took it out on their boats and introduced it to the British and the like. Um, and along with botanical history, they've got some serious distilling pedigree, particularly in a town called Schiedam. Schiedam. Uh, which is- 
Schiedam, which is home to the incredible Nole Distillery or Nolet, N-O-L-E-T Distillery. Um, and Schiedam is a beautiful town. I was lucky enough to go there. It's, it's not far from, but it's about 10 minute drive outside of Rotterdam, um, about an hour from Amsterdam. If you're a diehard uh, distillation fan, it's, it's probably on your list of mandatory pilgrimages ski down because in the 18th century it was the center of the spirits universe it was of quite a small place it's 20 square kilometer space but at its height they had 400 distilleries working there yeah it's a lot isn't it it's just a lot in a very small town um uh, history has not been kind to the producers particularly the second world war to go back to what we were talking about at the start of this pod. Sorry, Germans. It's a coincidence. But actually, they didn't blow it apart, to their credit. Um, it's still a beautiful sort of Dutch picture postcardy sort of place with windmills and canals. Uh, but obviously, occupation put put a bit of pressure on the distillers there. A lot of distillers went out of business. But one of the survivors was the Nole Distillery. It was opened in 1691, so it's been operational since then. And uh, during the 18th and 19th century, it was very famous for its gin. It's still a family-run business, and they still make great gin. But uh, rather ironically, I suppose, considering the the wave, the relentless wave of juniper spirits we're now seeing coming onto shelves, the 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 Nolet Distillery has really made its mark with uh, a vodka, Kettle One vodka, mm. and. Kettle One is a, a, what they describe as an ultra-wheat spirit. And when vodka's made, it goes through column distillation. So they they uh, they take out a lot of the congeners, the flavour, aromas and, and chemicals that, that make something, taste of something. So that's what vo- every vodka does. One of the core ambitions for vodka was to find purity. So they do this with Kettle One, but then they use a pot still, specifically a 19th century uh, Kettle Number One, pot still um which adds a bit more character to kettle one so for vodka fans who haven't tried it kettle one is it's uh how would you describe it ben? it's quite smooth isn't it it's very easy drinking neat but it's also got that slight peppery bite to it which means um it's got some character and it works really well in in cocktails as well which is what it was designed for the when they when they created it bartenders were craving vodkas with character so um, that's Kettle One Vodka. Why am I banging on about the vodka? Well, because it's the Kettle One Vodka that's at the base of this botanical spirit that we have to taste now. <clears throat> so now is the time, listeners, where you should, should you should be tasting it. Now, um, the way they make this is they use their Kettle One Vodka and then they infuse it with natural botanicals and redistill it in a copper pot still. So it's very much like a gin. And then they infuse again. But there are no artificial sweeteners or additives um and crucially unlike gin there's no juniper in here so if you don't like gin chances are you don't like juniper um but rather than claiming to be a gin kettle one has decided not to just dial down the juniper and call themselves a gin they've just said we're not gin we're a botanical spirit which i think is smart it's justifiable and it's really refreshing to see something called botanical spirit rather than mimicking a gin um so if you don't like gin crucially you can get all the experiences of a gin without that juniper piney sort of slightly bitter flavor. how is this different um to a flavored vodka then well it's 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 not massively um and that's the problem that gin's going through at the moment because by taking out some of the juniper some people are arguing those gins that are not respectful of what what gin should be which is juniper dominant they are essentially becoming flavored vodkas so there's probably some middle ground to be explored between a flavored vodka and a gin Um, and essentially 
what makes it different to a lot of flavoured vodkas is they're not using aroma chemicals or or easy, cheap ways to flavour their vodka. They are redistilling it like you would a gin. So it's got a lot of the the uh, essence of a gin production, but uh, using a, a that vo- really good quality vodka base. So you've got the peach and orange blossom to start off with. So we'll start with that. And on the nose, if you've got it, listeners, you're going to get a big whack of peach in there. Uh, which you should be getting, Ben, and it's and it suggests it might be quite sweet. There's that the orange blossom in there as well. And at first, when I smelt it, I thought, oh, this might be like a sweet peach vodka. Um, but actually, when you taste it, you notice that's what sets it apart from a, a badly flavoured vodka. It really isn't that. It's very clean. It's very dry. It's almost like what it would be like eating a slightly tart peach um, mm. but with that lovely orange blossom in there as well. So um, it's actually very easy to drink it neat um the next one is the cucumber and mint uh, anyone who likes a cucumber gin might have uh, might have been drawn to this one uh, when they're using when they're making this they're using lots of different techniques so one of them is called hydro distillation which is quite a commonly used method in uh, the perfume industry and they extract essential oils so they're taking the oils from something like mint and that's why if you taste it now you really get a quite a swipe, slightly sweeter mint flavor in there um, and again, it's really pungent on the nose, that fresh cucumbers in there. So if you're a fan of uh, cucumbers, that's the, that's the one to go for. And then the final one is the grapefruit and rose. Um, mm. Now, this is actually my favorite. And if you smell it, you get that really strong, zesty aroma. Um, <clears throat> they use citrus paradisi. So very strong flavoured grapefruit. And obviously they're sourcing all of these botanicals very carefully. The, the rose here is a, bit, uh, is a Bulgarian rose. And again, they've extracted the essential oils, this time through steam distillation. So lots of different techniques and lots of ways to get the best ingredients and the best flavours out of them and the aromas into the, the drink. Now, we're drinking them neat. They're actually all 30% ABV that's alcohol by volume. Strong. So that's quite important. Yeah, well, it's quite important because it's a lower strength than other other other, other spirits um and that, and that is great uh a lot of you probably still won't be drinking them neat uh, as a rule the best way to serve them is probably in a spritz in the garden in the sunshine uh so really you can take a 45 mil measure of one of these uh, kettle one botanical spirits and top with soda water uh, and ideally you're looking probably about 80 mil of soda water if you want to be precise lots of ice <clears throat> lots of ice pour it into a wine glass or a high bulb uh use decent ice don't want to over dilute it um and choose a garnish that fits the the ingredients so if you've got the grapefruit on the go obviously a slice of grapefruit is nice um and get this in that 45 mil measure you've only got 73 calories oh my word i'm yeah. body ready <laughs> here we go kettle one botanical spritz has 40 percent less calories in it than a glass of white wine so there you go it really is a proper alternative to a g&t if you don't like gin but also a, a glass of wine well we know that the g&t is a deceptive drink because that's full of calories isn't it exactly if you've got the big tonic going on yeah it's a uh, wolf and sheep clothing but I, what i find amazing is at 30 percent that they've managed to get so much character and flavour in there because often the, the higher the alcohol, the more the easier it is to to get that character out of the distillation process. Yeah. yeah. Um, so there we are. That's it. And when lockdown's over, get over to Skidam, see the 16th century windmills, the Hanaven Museum. You can get out on a bike from Rotterdam. Rotterdam's got loads of breweries, hasn't it, Ben? It's, uh, yeah. Um, so you can you can go and explore the region, get out to Gouda the cheese, have some cheese, a bit of cheese. A bit Love of, uh, a bit of cheese. Beer at the De Merlin Brewery and 
<clears throat> Lovely yeah. cheese. Do you know that? Um, um, and Holland and go more, to no distillery. I think Holland. I oh know Belgium's got more cheese types of cheese than France. Did you know that? It's not a. I didn't. Fact related to Holland, unfortunately. I thought no, it was Holland. Belgium, but does that maybe seamlessly bring us? Yeah, purely by chance, it has bring us seamlessly onto what my my beer, which is from Belgium. But um, ah. before we go into that, very quick, well, um, a man called Colin Judson uh, has written in. Uh, he's an opera singer. Uh, a little bit of a fact about opera singers. Uh, do you know the phrase? Uh, it's not over till the fat lady sings, which is supposed to be. Apparently Al Capone said that when he went to see an opera and all his heavies got bored and went to leave and he went, he turned around and said rather angrily, look, it's not even to the fat lady sings. But apparently there's another theory that it's a, it relates to pool. Um, ah, yes. The, uh, the game's not over until the fat lady sinks and the fat lady being number eight and the eight ball. Yeah, there you go. I don't know if it's true. I want it's true if you believe it. Anyway, yeah. he wrote in and he said, uh, he wrote, I'm enjoying your podcast. Good start, Colin, buttering us yeah. up. And listen, whilst out on my daily run, government approved. I have taken to supping my daily ale from a china mug. Um, does this vessel, does the vessel from which one sups make a difference? I have glass, of course, as well as pewter and china. All right, mate, don't need to show off. Mm-hmm. But um, to answer his question, well, he sent in a, lot, a picture of the, of the china tankard, and it's in the Harvey's Brewery, and um, it's a lovely looking tankard. Uh, and after living in Brighton for 10 years, I love a bit of Harvey's, but it's a wonderful old Victorian style brewery. Anyway, it's a nice looking receptacle. Um, and in, in his essay, Moon Underwater, George Orwell. Uh, banged on about his favourite, his most his ideal fictional pub, and he said he liked drinking beer out of a, out of a china tankard. Hmm. But George, with all due respect, was a fucking idiot, right? Because it's not. <laughs> I mean, what did he really do for us? What ben? did he do? He uh, wrote a, wrote a book about <clears throat> some animals, uh, and which inspired a disgusting film. Um, Anyway, <laughs> sadly, it's not the best. No, China's not the best glass to be drinking from. First, because you can't see the beer. From a sensory perspective, if your enjoyment of the beer it begins by looking at it, people in marketing say you drink with your eyes, which is not technically right, but you know you get you get the drift. And when your brain hears a beer going into a glass and then sees it billowing to the top, it tells your taste buds to get ready, it enhances the experience, and you can actually tell a lot from looking at a beer. Um, I'd only recommend a China tankard for drinking beer secretly like at the office or at yeah. home if you're pretending you pretend it's a cup of tea so it's, it's great for problem drinkers but for discerning drinkers listening to this podcast not good it's not good for, it's not good for trump it's not good for trump is it <laughs> no china where's your what, what are you drinking out china i'm not having a china cup <laughs> ask china um yeah it's not for trump um so, uh, so that's. Oh, I hope that's answered your uh, question, Colin. Keep running, keep listening to podcasts, and keep singing. Um, so, but glassware is very important, and this brings us seamlessly along with my cheese link um, onto Belgium, um, where pretty much every, each and every uh, beer has their own bespoke glass um, that, that that enhances the flavour and the experience of the beer itself. Um, and we don't have, they're much more, there's much more reverence in Belgium when it comes to the look and the presentation and the, 
tasting of the beer and the pouring of the beer. In in Britain, for example, we just we just pour it into a big old pint glass, and there's not been that much kind of reverence. In fact, I wrote a, an article in in the Guardian uh, back in 2011, and I stumbled across it again researching this bit about getting rid of the pint glass. And oh my god, I got absolutely murdered. Uh, uh, I got over 500 people commented on it, and I reckon 498 were against the idea quite vociferously. I even got a death threat, Tom, from an anonymous cameraman. Yeah. Do you remember this? Saying he, or oh, might have been she, I wanted, wanted to slit my throat with a broken pint glass. Well, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I wrote back out saying, what, straight or dimpled? Um, I didn't get any response, but it uh, just proves that people are very, very uh, passionate about the iconic pint glass. Anyway, in Belgium, like I say, reverence for beer has traditionally been much more pronounced than where the beers have traditionally tend to be stronger. Glassware is much more important. Um, in Antwerp, for example, the deconic beer has a glass called a bollock. Oh, oh, yeah. That, that we're not going to untrue. Antwerp. We're not getting our lips around a bollock. Uh, this week, we are going to go to a place called Brindonk, which is about halfway between Antwerp and Brussels, home to the Duvel Mordgat Brewery whose flagship beer is the iconic Duvel beer. Now, most people will know about Duvel. Um, it's an iconic, wonderful, wonderful beer. Um, it dates, uh, The brewery dates back to 1871, so it'll be celebrating its 150th anniversary next year. Uh, it was founded by a guy called Jan Leonard Mordgat. And after World War I, he went to Scotland and obtained a Scottish yeast strains yeast strain from McEwen's. You know McEwen's beer? Yeah, yeah. So he went there. He stayed it. it, or did they do oh, no, I think, it? I think, no, I think they gave it to him. Hmm. Um, <laughs> it was more collaborative back then. Um, and this yeast strain, the Scots were brewing this quite big, strong beers, and so it produced an exceptional flavour, this yeast strain. And he brought it back to Belgium and introduced it to his brewery. And using this yeast, they using this yeast, they brewed a beer called Victory Ale, which was brewed to celebrate the end of the First World War. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we just can't avoid it. I know. I, I, At least it's the first. I, yes. <laughs> How many? You started it. We finished it. All right. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, I don't know why we keep coming back to the war. This is like an episode of Forty Towers. I genuinely, I hadn't realised that link. Um, uh, but obviously, it was called Victory Ale because we won, um, and we celebrate. It was built to celebrate the end of hostilities. And legend has it that a few, few, few years later, in nineteen twenty-three, a local shoemaker tasted it and described it as a real devil on account of its deceptive high strength and drinkability. It's 8.5%. That's very easy to drink. But that was that originally it was brewed with dark malts, so it looked really dark. And even then, it was deceptively drinkable. But then in 1970, they swapped the dark malt for, the, for pale malt, and Duvel became the, the founding father of a beer of, of style broadly known as Belgian strong blonde ales. So it went from being a dark beer to a golden beer. And so therefore it looked even more, it was even more deceptive in its drinkability. Now it's, it's a wonderful beer and the way they brew it is very, very important. There's normal primary fermentation, primary conditioning, which is essentially the yeast turning sugars into alcohol and then letting it, um, 
letting it chill out and get in touch with its flavour. But it's the bottle conditioning that makes it unique. Um, it's made with two noble hop varieties, Zars and Styrian Goldings, made with pale Pilsner malt and this McEwen's house yeast. Um, but the bottle conditioning involves what they do is they put it in, they put the beer into the bottles with extra sugar and yeast, and at, at high temperatures, around 24 degrees Celsius, they let that yeast and that sugar get together for two weeks, during which time the yeast eats all the sugar and produces the additional alcohol, the lovely spicy phenols, the fruity esters, and importantly, that high carbonation. And after this frenzied fermentation, the beer's a bit knackered, so it needs time to relax and get its chill on. So they let, they let it rest for six weeks of cold conditioning, around five degrees Celsius. And the whole process takes 90 days, three months. And it's this process, it's this patience that creates those complex flavors. Now, what I'm going to do now is that rather than just plonk the beer into the glass, there's a very distinct way of pouring the glass. And if you've got a glass with you or and a bottle with you, this is how to do it. The only way to drink this beer is in the classic Duval tulip glass, which is nucleated. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm doing this as well. Mean? Do you know what <clears throat> nucleated means, Tom? Well, I don't know specifically what it means, but it gives you the bubbles. Yeah, it's basically an etching at the bottom of the glass, which um, which creates all the effervescence. And traditionally, in the past, uh, that used oh. bubbles used to stick to pieces of dirt on in, invisible pieces of dirt on the inside of the glass. Really, but with modern dishwashing techniques, it got rid of all these these little specks of dirt, which meant that the beer was beer started to look flat. So what the beer marketers did was they started producing glasses with etchings in a bottle to create the carbonation. Ah, yes. I didn't know that. That's quite yeah. a good one. Yeah. So, um, but even in a nation that uh, revels in the reverence, reverence of the poor, the theatre of dispense, as they like to call it, Tom, the decanting of Duval into this glass is, is famous. Now, the first thing first, the glass must be clean and dry. The beer must be chilled to five degrees Celsius. At no point must the bottle touch the glass. So what you do firstly, you tilt the glass at a 45 degree angle, pour the beer down the side until it touches the duval lettering etched on the side of the glass. Mm-hmm. Next, slowly tilt the glass back so that it's upright. Keep pouring while you pull the beer away, so up towards the ceiling from the glass and stop pouring when the froth reaches a level about one centimetre from the rim of the glass. Now, in order to scoop up that flavoursome yeast at the bottom of the bottle, give the bottle a little circular swirl and then pour this liquid into the glass. So there's lots of yummy goodness in that yeast in terms of, well, I say it's good for you. It's probably it's not necessarily good for you, but it makes the beer taste nicer. Um, now, ideally, the line between the beer and the head should dissect the D in the middle of the glass. Uh, and there should be a massive head on this. Now, head right. is good, right. isn't it, Tom? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm a fan. I'm a fan, big fan of head. But I know that there are some people out there who don't like head. Um, and that's, you know, it's, it's both 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 um, genders. Don't There will be people who have a preference for no head. And um, and I, I I have spent enough time drinking beer to know why it's important. But why don't you tell the listeners? Well, convince it, it looks nice. Head is best. It looks nice. Uh, firstly, like I say, you drink with your eyes. It keeps the CO two in, which keeps all the lovely flavours in. Keeps oxygen out, which ruins all the flavours. And it's here where the Zars and Styrian hops 
can be tasted. If you stick your finger into the froth, have a just a little taste of it, you'll get that lovely metallic mm. hot bitterness. Now, then you want to drink drink it, obviously. Yeah, I have been, I'll be honest. Oh, good, good, good. And within and what's amazing about this beer is that the combination of the hoppy head and then the lovely um yeasty character and the the the, the pale malt, the biscuity malt, and then you've got those t- the, the the two the, the two classic noble hop varieties. It, it creates this lovely clove and pear drop flavours that comes in the yeast. It's very herbal. It's lovely and fragrant. Mm. Orange zest in it. It's really smooth. That ninety days ferment a brewing process with the fermentation and the bottle conditioning really comes through. And if you're having a barbecue this summer, this isn't a, the best barbecue beer. For to session on, I'm just going to no. tell people that now it's April <laughs> represent. But if you're having any kind of prawns or lobster, a bit fancy, but this is amazing with garlic buttered prawns, it is yeah. stunning. Mm. So, oh, it's a wonderful beer. They've they've got to check out the Duval Triple Hop series ever since 2007. The brewers at Duval have been busy innovating with a third hop variety to give the classic beer sort of uh, a bit of a twist, um, and a bit of more extra bitterness. Um, and each spring they, they they launched a different different hop variety and they launched Duval Citra, Citra hop, permanently back in 2017. It's it's like a Belgian twist on an IPA, but it's 9.5%. So drink less, drink better. Yeah. Uh, and also, Tom, you're like this, they've also, also started barrel aging as well. Lovely stuff. Oak, uh, oak barrels, ex-bourbon barrels from Heaven Hill, Woodford Reserve, Four Roses, nice, nice. Uh, George Dickel. Don't know that one, George Dickens. Yeah, okay. And Jack Daniels. Uh, they mature the Duval for nine months, and each year they launch a limited edition, small batch release at eleven and a half percent. Flipping, very it. special, very hard to get hold of. We've got a bottle here um, that we'll try again. We'll, we'll try in, in the future. Um, and so they're really uh, they're 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 a very traditional old brewery. Do things the same way they've done them for for, for ages, but they do innovate and and keep it they don't get stuck in the past put it that way yeah uh, and their glasses are wonderful and two quid about two, two quid, quid. £2. something like that du- classic duval widely available from tesco sainsbury's as the waitress morrison's everywhere everywhere. Yeah, everywhere um and then you've got um the the duval triple hoppers available from tesco and morrison's as well so and i think mm. there was the talk of craft yeah this this the classic Belgians often get forgotten. So I highly recommend it. I love it, but it is 8.5%. So don't operate. So that, uh, it's good. I did get my bottle in, in Sainsbury. So just, it really is genuinely available and out there to get a bottle of that. And um, so that, so that was the Duval to recap. That's where you can get that. And to recap on mine, we had the Kettle One Botanicals, uh, the variants there coming in at £23.95 from the Whiskey Exchange. Um, uh, and, and talking of uh, Woodford and, bourbon barrels actually that brings us on to what we'll be trying trying next week because next week i'm going to talk about the manhattan cocktail wow so yes yeah, so you're going to want to get in some american whiskey and i'm going to use woodford kentucky straight bourbon for reasons that will become a bit clearer when we talk about it and that'll cost 32 pounds 95 from the whiskey exchange i'm going to make a sweet manhattan so you're also going to need some sweet vermouth uh, i'm going to be using chazalette rosso so the red uh, chazalette uh, vermouth 
Uh, that's £22.75 from the Whiskey Exchange. I've been drinking that neat this week, so it's a, a vermouth that you will get finished, even if you just want to use it in one Manhattan, you can still drink it neat. Um, and you'll need some Angostura bitters and uh, some maraschino cherries, and they're all, all available on the Whiskey Exchange, as well as all the tools, because you're going to need some tools if you want to make a cocktail, including a coupe glass or a cocktail glass, uh, a mixing glass of some sort, something to stir with, strainer so you can strain into the glass plenty of ice and something to measure out your booze again all, all of the tools are available on whiskeyexchange.com as well so come prepared for our next one on the manhattan and what are you going to be tasting ben? talking of tools dom that brings us seamlessly onto my my beer i'm going to taste next week which is from the two all brewery in denmark and that beer is called oh. goes to hollywood g-o-s-e to hollywood and it's part of the MS beer range. And Marks and Spencer's, Yves Saint Michel, where I get all my pants and socks, uh, they have expanded their beer range. And, and one of them is the two old uh, range of beers. And at £3.50 from MS in store, they're not delivering, unfortunately. But if you want to go online, you can go to ebria.com, uh, E B R I A.com. All the details uh, of where to buy them will be in the podcast description. Brilliant. Thank you very much for listening, folks. That's what we'll be drinking next week. So join us again for another Around the World in 80 Drinks and we'll speak to you then. Cheers. Cheers. No, no, it's not your turn. I can have a turn. No, 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 you can't have a turn. <laughs> it would be better, Rory, to be fair. <laughs> Wait a minute. I'm going to have to sort of have to take him down and confront my wife. Hang on. I'll be back in a minute. Boom. All right.